If you're suffering from stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, inflammation, pain management, kind of like I am pretty much all the time, I highly encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. And that's C-O for Colorado. It's a Colorado-based company, Canna, C-A-N-N-A, care.com. They make incredible CBD oil that's derived from all natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states and is USDA certified 100% organic. And there's absolutely no THC content in the oil. It's non-GMO and contains no heavy metals or pesticides. They've been gracious enough to help support us during this time. So if you're wanting to try CBD oil for any of those reasons I mentioned and a lot more on their website, I highly encourage you just to give it a shot. Check it out. Go to CoCanna care.com and again that's c-o for colorado c-a-n-n-a care.com and so when um i got this this bus the the person i bought it from told me that it can only drive for two hours and then you have to sit sit and let it rest for half an hour which probably should have been a good alarm bell for me but for some reason i was just you know overwhelmed by this beautiful volkswagen with all these windows around it This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey, listeners. Thanks for for joining today. Um, A few things are happening for the first time right now. One, I have the hiccups for the first time ever while doing an intro over two years of doing this, and I've never had hiccups, and I cannot get rid of them, so you're going to have to deal with it for this uh, for this intro. And secondly, I had a brand new episode, an awesome episode that I recorded last week, and I, that's all I've been talking about was this episode. It was so fun to talk to, uh, to this guy, and... Uh, Another first, I go to check the audio tonight, the night before uh, to release the episode, and which I try not to do. I try not to cut it that close just in case there's any, any hiccups. No pun intended there. Check the audio, like I said, and my side didn't record. And so it, it, it technically it did, but it's so faint. The audio is so faint and muffled, you can hardly understand it. And so I'm going to try to clean it up this week to prevent from redoing the episode. Um, but until then... I don't have another episode ready to go just because I, I cut it real close with uh, moving and um, just wasn't able to record for like three weeks with every, all the equipment gone and uh, just, just getting settled down here. Finally, um, we're also tearing apart our house, so it's great timing for all this. And I know there's a million things in the world going on. So uh, just to add on top of that, we've got all this other stuff we're trying to do that uh, just feels like the worst timing ever. So uh so that being said, I'm sorry if this is really bothering you this intro. I I cannot stop hiccuping. <laughs> Holy crap. What an adventure. This is adventure right here, baby. This is uh what it's all, what it's all about. But um so instead of replaying trying to get through that episode tonight at ten o'clock at night, I've decided to uh just have a revisited episode, one I've never heard and one that sounds incredible credible, which is traveling from Chile to Alaska on a VW bus, something that I've always dreamt of doing. Um, Anyway, sounds like an awesome story. Uh, Ben Jammin, I remember hearing this from the previous hosts, Kurt and Travis. They loved this episode. They loved Ben Jammin. Yes, that's his real name. And uh, I hope you... 
you enjoy the episode, and I hope you just uh, hope it isn't bothering you too much. We don't have a brand new episode ready to go today. I really apologize. I'm very sorry, and uh, it's never happened before, so it's always room for a first time ever. So thanks for joining again. Here is the episode. We have with us today Ben Jammin. What a cool name. Ben took a Volkswagen bus from the southern part of South America all the way up to Alaska. And we are here today to talk about overlanding and what it took to do such an epic journey. Uh, it, it was a lifestyle, not just a trip. And I am really excited to hear a lot about that. I'm going to say right out of the, the shoot here, you can get more information about what Ben has been up to from combilife.com. That's K-O-M-B-I-L-I-F-E.com. He also has a most excellent YouTube channel, which is uh, by the same name, Combi Life. And so, Ben, welcome to the program. Wow, thanks. That was a great introduction, Kurt. <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> kind of a skeleton when you've done so much. I don't hardly know where to start, but tell you what, let's do this. If you can just, in a couple of sentences, paraphrase what it is that you did, then we'll dive into more details. Well, I did drive an old Volkswagen bus from Chile to Alaska. It did take me about six years, and that was mainly because there was a lot of problems along the way, and also because I was documenting the whole thing to share with people via YouTube. But I guess one of the most interesting things about our trip was that my project was to share my bus with the random people that I met on the streets of South Central and North America. So I literally was meeting people, and that very night I was sleeping right next to them in the back of my Volkswagen. <laughs> well, that takes a level of trust with humanity, doesn't it? It, it does a little bit. Um, and you know what, though? I've got to say, after all of the time and over 100 people in the back of the bus, we really didn't have any major issues. A few clashes of personality and perhaps some people didn't stay as long as they might have intended to. But for the most part, it just goes to show how good natured travelers are. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, we have done hundreds and hundreds of interviews and a good number of those have been with world travelers. And I get that same report from everyone is that, people are generally pretty decent. You know, everyone seems to have a story or two where things kind of went sideways. But by and large, they just say worldwide, people are decent. You know what I mean? They are. And that's a big part of, um, you know, why I document my travels is to, to kind of show that to people. In this day and age, uh, I think a lot of people are scared of what they see on the media and on the news, because often it's only the negative stories that are, are shared. And some people don't actually want to go traveling. And my experience, not just in the six years of this, this journey, but also the four years I was backpacking before that, is that everybody was extremely extremely welcoming and um you know that people were just there to to help you if you needed help and they wanted to get to know you they were interested in you so yeah i think it's um i feel like it's my responsibility to tell people that traveling is an option for everybody um they don't need to be worried about you know what might happen i mean obviously you need to be a little bit cautious but you don't, it shouldn't be something that puts you off, and it's certainly not a showstopper. Absolutely. You know, the life outside of the box is kind of a play on words. You could think of that as life outside of the corporate cube, 
or thinking outside of the box, doing things in a unique and new way. But you could also think of it as getting out of the boxes that we've built around ourselves, the, the boxes that hold us back from having those life experiences. And I think that's what you're alluding to here. We all build these boxes of perception that scare us. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually escaping the the corporate box myself. I used to work um, a nine to five or more likely an eight to seven uh, office job when I was, you know, trying to make other people rich for, for no good reason. And I just kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to go traveling and I'm going to do it because when I'm on my deathbed, that is the one thing that I cannot regret. I mean, maybe I don't like it. Maybe I decide that I want to go back to my corporate box, but at least I would have tried and I will know for myself that I won't have any regrets when I'm older. Mm. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And I know that there's some people out there that say, well, there's also a lot of wisdom in having a nice big 401k when you retire, right? <laughs> but Yeah, that is an argument. People people say that often, actually. Um, and you do have to think about that, but... I don't know. There's, there's a lot to be said for enjoying part of your life and having, you know, an extended period where you go backpacking and, and just experience true freedom that you will never experience in your life. And whilst you're physically able to hike up those mountains and slide down those zip lines. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the balancing arguments to that big fat 401k. You might get that anyway. You never know how life's going to turn out. But one thing for certain is that when you have your health and your youth and your enthusiasm, that's the best time to experience these things. Later on in life, you may or may not have that. And so there's there's an argument for living large when you can. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, pretty much my motto. And, you know, there are so many opportunities in terms of making a business for yourself. Just looking at other things that are successful in different parts of the world and bringing one of those ideas back to your home country that hasn't been done there before. There's a guy, for example, in Chile who um, basically used to sell hot nuts at the, at the metro station of the underground. And he went to New York City and started doing the same thing and found out that it was also popular there, but nobody was doing it because they were just selling hot dogs. So he started employing people to sell hot, uh, hot nuts at other places. And now there are hot nuts all around the cities and he's a millionaire. Well, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. When we travel, we can learn so much um, in ways of new ideas and, and new opportunities. And if we don't travel, then those opportunities are lost. So I have no doubt that in your travels, you probably have hundreds of things that that could develop into a business of some sort if you took the time to to wrestle with them and, and bring them to fruition. Yeah, there's uh, certainly a few better options than trying to pursue a career um, making YouTube videos. But being creative in that way is a passion of mine. I enjoy the challenge of film. And it's something I actually learned on the journey. I, I wasn't you know, I said I was from an IT background, but when I started documenting my travels, I just had a point and shoot camera, which was kind of a bit crappy. And I was borrowing the equipment from the people that I was picking up, the hitchhikers. So I'd borrow their camera and just keep copying things across on SD cards. <laughs> I'd borrow their laptop and download some editing software, install it for an evening, do a little bit more editing. And I did that for the first year of, of my channel. Wow. <laughs> so you had a uh, YouTube channel and, and it's successful and at that without even having the equipment. That's, all, <laughs> that's remarkable. Yeah, it, it, it took a while. I mean, these days it's a different kind of level of production. I'm trying to always improve, uh, 
our our travel series and try to make our travel stories as entertaining and as engaging as possible so we do have a like a bit better equipment now thankfully you know a drone and things like that well tell you what let's do let's step back a little bit and talk a little bit about the kind of the framework for this amazing life adventure and then uh, we'll dive into more details of the how-to and how you made it work but the first thing is, you already mentioned you had the corporate IT job, you decided you wanted to travel, and you did some traveling before this trip. What gave you the idea of doing this trip? What was the inspiration for it? Um, are you talking about from like giving up my job or specifically why I started doing this overlanding in Pan- in the Pan American? Well, I specifically meant the overlanding, but I think I like the, the first question even better. So let's do both. Let's start with what got you out of the job. I think it was going back to what I said before about, you know, that um, almost like a FOMO, like a fear of missing out um, and YOLO doing a lot of hashtags here, but um, you only live once. You know, I kind of felt that it was worthwhile sacrificing a little bit of my time and, and actually my career to see whether it was something I wanted to do. I really do feel that travel is something you can't regret. So being that you can't regret it and it's one of the few things in life that comes with that guarantee you might as well give it a go and i didn't intend for it to turn into a career um i didn't even intend to go to south america to start overlanding i actually got cornered on my way to new zealand to go snowboarding for six months and they as they do frequently now they they put you on the spot and say do you have an an outbound ticket or a return ticket um, this wasn't a thing going back like 10 years, but now with the visa restrictions that are um, worldwide, people want to make sure that you're leaving the country when you arrive. And as I didn't have an outbound ticket from New Zealand, I had to quickly, within I think about an hour, go and find an internet connection and a, um, a public computer in, in uh, the airport and book a ticket to anywhere that didn't have a visa requirement. And that just happened to be South America. <laughs> so isn't it fun when you when you put your you take your first steps out the door and you have some sort of a plan but isn't it funny how things get changed up on us and we don't really know until we start walking that's pretty much the whole nature of travel is you know being able to adapt it's one of the skills you learn and it, it's quite scary for a lot of people that are used to kind of knowing the a to b of their vacation but i think um for any any perpetual traveler or long, long-term backpacker, anybody that's backpacked for even a couple of months will understand that a big part of the joy is not knowing where you're going to sleep tonight and or what you'll be doing next week and just kind of seeing who you meet and where the road takes you. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ben, when you first decided that you were going to transition into a, a traveling lifestyle, uh, what were the things that were kind of holding you back? obstacles or fears or what was in the way that you had to overcome there was definitely some fear i'll be honest with you um a lot of people that follow our youtube channel they think that you know i must be like absolutely fearless some of the places i go and i would never do that and i can't believe he did this um i've been scared every single time that i've changed a continent or started a new trip i'm nervous about like my future travels and i think that's just human nature it's It's overcoming those fears and putting yourself at the edge of your comfort zone where you really experience the true growth. And so that's why I keep kind of putting myself in those situations. Mm. 
Yeah, I believe in that very much so. It's part of what the Adventure Sports Podcast has always been about. By challenging ourselves, we grow. And yeah. we, we enlarge our lives and we make memories. Our life experience becomes just so much more valuable. And uh, I, I fully get what you're talking about. You know, I was just planning my 14ers that I plan to climb this summer. And just in planning the mountains that I want to get up, my heart started racing a little bit, not knowing what the experiences are going to be. But that not that part of the attractiveness of it as well? Absolutely, it is. Um it's a big, it's a big part of it, and I guess that's what keeps the adrenaline pumping and the enthusiasm there for me, at least. After I guess, well, this will be my tenth year anniversary this year of of traveling. Wow! I retired. I retired from the corporate world ten years ago. So, if you don't mind, how old were you when you retired from the corporate world? When I was hired, I was hired straight out of university. Um, so, I've been on the hustle pretty much since I could first get employed. Uh, you know, with a delivering newspapers as a kid until I finally said, hey, I'm going traveling at the age of 26. 26. And that's a great age to do it. But I think people of all ages, you know, can do it. There's no age limitation to this. But uh, obviously, there's really not. There's a, there's a kind of perception that it, it's a, a young man's game or young person's game, um, not to be sexist. It's obviously travel is a, um, something that both parties do males and females my girlfriend has also been traveling for as long as i have um so i was very lucky to meet somebody that's uh like-minded so let's go back to the okay i've got to have a return trip from new zealand so i can get into new zealand and that's what took you to south america let's take it from there how did you decide to get this volkswagen bus and drive all the way to alaska uh, a few people had advised me against doing that. Um, some people that I knew from South America, they said it's it's not really done down there, you, you know. And you, when I got there, I realized that people don't have camper vans. There are no RVs. There's no even it's difficult to buy a tent in, in most places in, in South America. And that's because of, you know, people's fear of, of being outside. And so it. It was a little difficult to get started, but after I think the first month in South America, I'd started to learn a couple of words of Spanish and I really didn't speak any Spanish at all. I um, basically decided I'd had enough of the rather expensive, but like long bus journeys because South America is a big place. Oh, yeah. And and I basically decided, you know what, I'm going to get myself some wheels. Why did you choose a Volkswagen bus? Probably because I was insane. I think it was the, one of the poorest choices of vehicles that I possibly could have <laughs> have, could, could have gone for. And it was really a choice between two vans. One of them was an old Japanese ambulance, uh, and the other one was a Volkswagen bus. They were both the cheapest vans for sale in Chile at the time. And I went to Chile because it's actually logistically easier for a foreigner to buy a vehicle and take it out of the country. Where did you get the name Combi Life? What, there's got to be a story behind that too. Yeah, it's um, you know it seemed completely straightforward and and a really good name until I got like to the US and people started asking that question because basically south of the US border a Volkswagen bus is called a Combi. I thought that might be the case. That's why I asked it when I did, but I wasn't even sure. So yeah, a lot of people don't really get that. I mean, it's called a, a Combi. I think in the UK also and also in Australia, so, yeah. Yeah, we should point out, you are on the island of Jersey right now. You're back in the UK after these travels. 
and uh, that's your home base, right? Yeah, um, I'm not here very often. I've actually just arrived here after um, six months crossing the U.S. Uh, from the west to the east coast. Uh, I'm kind of in the mid like stages of starting up an even bigger overlanding journey um, to come, but that's all in the kind of preparation stages right now. Well, if you don't mind, a little bit later in the show, I'd like to hear some of your dreams and and hopes for that trip as well. But we've got to get back to the one that you know we started talking about, from Chile to Alaska. So you bought the combi, you bought the bus, and you said you were probably insane to do it. But let's just give some parameters around that. So it broke down a couple of times or more, right, on your journey. How many times did you have to rebuild this thing? Well, let me take you from the beginning here, because... You know, you've got to picture this situation. I'm I'm in Chile. I don't speak any Spanish. I don't know how to buy a vehicle. Um, I don't know how to fix a vehicle. Uh, and I just b- basically reached out to the couch surfing community to see, for those people that don't know, the couch surfing is um, a way to host uh, travelers when, you know, when you're visiting a city. So if you need accommodation, for example, and you want to sleep on somebody's couch, you can go and stay with somebody. They're kind of like a local tour guide. It's all free. Um, It's an honor system. And then perhaps when you go home, you can host travelers for a while at your residence. And so this is how I kind of got my feet into Chile. And long story short, I ended up meeting a guy who was willing to take me and help, help me buy a vehicle and he kind of hooked me up with his family and I ended up living with them for about four months uh, whilst I kind of bought the combi and did up like turned it from a van into something that people could sleep in mm, okay and so when um, I got this this bus the the person I bought it from told me that it can only drive for two hours and then you have to sit sit and let it rest for half an hour which probably should have been a good um, alarm bell for me but for some reason i was just you know overwhelmed by this beautiful volkswagen with all these windows around it uh, and the 360 view and so i just didn't really pay attention to that and i paid the price i was fixing that bus for a long time i think overlanding a classic vehicle from one end of the planet to the other is an ex- i know it's an extremely difficult challenge and by the time I got to Alaska, I think I had the engine out about 11 or 12 times. <laughs> so about a dozen times you had to drop the engine in this thing. Yeah. I mean, that's not even the half of it. We can get into some more of it. But it's um, I put in my time. Of the six years of driving from Chile to Alaska, approximately 12 months was spent living in various latin mechanics learning how to build an engine from pretty much scratch wow did you ever think i should just drop this thing and get something else or maybe this trip was misguided enough that i should pivot a little bit and try something new yes i did but i honestly felt that i needed to learn some patience and i felt the challenges were a good opportunity to acquire new skills so gradually through the process i started to learn to speak spanish i started to realize that the the main reason that i travel is to cut like this slowly purposefully um, overland rather than just flying in is so that i can 
engage with cultures that are different to mine and kind of try to understand them a little bit more. And that's exactly what I was getting. It wasn't what I, how I'd planned to do it. I'd planned to do it with a coconut in my hand sitting on a beach somewhere. But I happened to be in a mechanics, you know, going to work every day with a couple of people that spoke very quickly and pretty filthy Spanish. <laughs> and that that's how I learned to to kind of immerse myself in the culture. Mm, what an amazing life experience. So there have to be, you know, a thousand and one stories that come out of that. Um, will you pick a story that just kind of illustrates what life was like on this journey? Share it with us. There's, there are so many. I mean, it's really, it, after over six years, it's very difficult to kind of pick one story. But um, for example, let's talk about the, the early days, because this is largely undocumented. This was the days before I was really filming as often as I do now. I had just spent four months living with this family, um, and they were giving me accommodation and food in exchange for allowing me to work on I would I would help them build cabanas at their seaside kind of ranch and in the mornings and in the in the afternoons they would allow me to work on my bus so after four months of that I was itching to get out of Chile I, I picked up one guy who uh, was from the UK so there was a you know no language barrier there and we headed over the Andes mountains over the, I think pretty much the highest pass between Chile and Mendoza it's about 7,000 meters, but I'm not sure what that is in feet. I can tell you it's very high. Oh, 7,000 meters is, what, 20, over over 20,000 feet, well over. I, I'll do the math. You keep talking. Yeah, it's pretty high. Um, we picked up a couple of Colombian hitchhikers that were coming from Argentina back to Chile, but they basically found themselves in this no man's land. I think it's like 13 kilometers between the Chilean and Argentine border. And they were basically stuck. Argentina had kicked them out and Chile was not letting them in. And so we were like, well, I said I would pick up hitchhikers. So this is a good time to start. <laughs> and we basically took them, managed to get them through Argentina. And we were parking in a, in a nice, tranquil um, plaza, like a park in, in uh, Mendoza, which is central wine country in Argentina. Um, and then the police showed up and basically shot a guy at point blank range, not like 20 feet from the, the bus. And that was the first night that we spent on the trip. So it was, it sure was an eye opener. Wow. So this was an actual shot dead scenario? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, he um, basically shot him. Um, we were kind of peering through the curtains because at the time we thought, oh, here come the police. We're going to be asked. We told we can't sleep here and asked to move on. And that wasn't what was happening. He he shot a guy that we had just been speaking to a few minutes earlier. Um, and we're not sure exactly what happened, but, you know, it's the second he hit the ground, he was he was gone, unfortunately. Wow. And a few minutes later, there was seven police cars, an ambulance turned up. Not that that was really required. Um, and we ended up spending the night at the police station, which actually wasn't the first time that happened in South America. We, well, it was the first time. It wasn't the only time that happened in South America. We, we spent quite a lot of nights sleeping outside of police stations until we got to Colombia, I think. Well, were you sleeping outside of the police station for safety reasons or because the police wanted you there? 
They, well, a bit of both. Um, often we would just find somewhere to sleep, you know, a quiet neighborhood, somewhere that we thought looked okay. And we get a knock on the window at three o'clock in the morning. Now, if that kind of thing happened in the US, it might be a policeman saying, hey, this isn't a campsite. You can't sleep here. But in South America, they said, hey, this is not safe. Please come with me. And then they park you right outside the front of the police station where they could keep an eye on you. So they were pretty good. Wow. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about safety. You you just, you know, kicked this off with a, a really frightening story. You know, that must have given you some real pause or, or things to think about as you were starting this trip. Did it make you think maybe you were misguided and, and shouldn't do it? I feel like I've got a pretty good judge uh, judgment of whether a, a location is dangerous or not. And the place that we were parked in was... I would still park there today. It wasn't a dodgy area. Um, I think it was a corrupt cop. And I don't think that it was anything uh, bad going on in terms of like the person we were speaking with that got shot uh, wasn't a, you know, wasn't much of a thug. He certainly didn't do anything to the policeman that warranted uh, getting shot. And so, you know, sometimes you do have to have your wits about you, but you know, sometimes things can happen that are out of your control. And I, I guess that my my way of thinking is that I would not really want to just kind of sit at home wrapped up in, in cotton wool just in case something could happen. Um, I'd rather be out there and, you know, living life and being on the edge of my comfort zone. Just, you know, doing so with caution, not living recklessly, in South America, I'm sure some people listening to that story will probably think, oh, it's, you know, that's confounded all my fears. And I'm, you know, there's no way I would do that. But that was the only time that happens. And I spent six years on the Pan American Highway. Yeah. And in six years of life, no matter where you are on the planet, you could see something similar, right? Yeah. I don't want to pick on any particular American cities, but. I, I have to be honest with you, um, at times we felt a little more unsafe in the US than we did south of the border, which would probably surprise people. I'm not really surprised just because I've talked to so many travelers and, and having traveled around. There are parts of the United States, um, you know, parts of different cities where it just doesn't make a lot of sense to to hang out at the wrong time of the day, that sort of a thing. And I think that people in the U.S. understand that. Um, but they also are afraid to travel sometimes. And it, that kind of cracks me up because, you know, if, if you know how to stay out of dodgy places in the cities right here at home, then that's really all you need to do if you travel is watch out for the dodgy places. Yeah, it's, I mean, exactly, exactly what you said. It's uh, If you can handle yourself at home, you, there's no reason why you can't handle yourself somewhere else. Well, here's one question that did pop up I want to ask you about, and then we'll move on to other subjects. But you mentioned that you thought the policeman may be corrupt. That's actually the one thing that troubles me. And here you can uh, alleviate my fears. That's the one thing that troubles me is not so much that the people might be dangerous in some way in a country when we travel. It's, it's, the, it's the system. Is the system going to turn against us? You know, the government, the police, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a concern. There's always corrupt police, not in Chile, because Chile, uh, they have a very good police force. And they're, I think, one of the only countries in South America where there isn't a lot of corruption. But 
all of the other ones for sure, especially Mexico. Mexico is terrible for trying to bribe tourists. And I, I have, I'm proud to say after 10 years of travel, I have never once paid a bribe. I wow. literally flatly refuse to do it. And I feel like it's my responsibility as a traveler to not pay a bribe because if I do it, they know that the next tourist that comes down the road is likely to do it too. And so I just sit there and tell them I have all the time in the world and I'm not paying it, no matter what they say I did. And they always, every single time, let me go. And I've been pulled over many, many times. Wow. Well, you kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask about border crossings and things like that. And it sounds like if you're patient enough, it works out. For the most part, I did run into a pretty serious show-stopping uh, drama towards the end of the trip, which involved border crossings and, and visas and things like that, which basically put me... That was That's quite an interesting story. I don't know if you want to get into that one. Yeah, let's dive into it. Well, I guess near the end of the trip, it was uh, 1,000 miles to go to the finish line, and my transmission blew up. At the point, this point, I'd had the engine out 10 times and I was starting to lose my patience. And uh, the, the transmission blew up. There was, you know, we had, yeah, like just a thousand miles to go to, to the Arctic Ocean, which was where we, I really wanted to get to to end the trip. And I ended up basically leaving the bus because it was August in Alaska. Winter was coming. I was running out of time. I was unable to find a replacement transmission you know a south american combi is kind of a unique beast and i wasn't able to find the part anywhere in north america i called australia um the uk i just could not find a transmission so i decided to go home to jersey where i am now to basically try to find a transmission and also apply for a visa extension because I'd already been in and out of the US a couple of times on a on the kind of free 90-day visa waiver that we get given as, as UK citizens. And unfortunately, the embassy said, no, I couldn't have the visa, um, mainly because I didn't have any ties to my home country. And this is a problem that, that faces a lot of kind of long-term travelers. I have a, a long history of um, clean, of a clean passport. I've always left every single country I visited before my visa was up so as to not overstay because that is the one major thing that I'm always worried about. And they said, no, you can't have, you can't have a visa. And in doing, in doing so, that, that basically banned me from going back to the US where my bus was waiting for me in Alaska. So even though I managed to find a, a replacement transmission, um, I wasn't able to go back and finish the trip, or so I thought. I basically resolved that by kicking up a huge fuss uh, on on social media and asking my my uh, su supporters and followers to to write to their local senators and congressmen, and even the governor of Alaska and the um, ambassador of the uh, U.S. embassy in London, asking. For me to be able to finish this trip because after five years of, of trying to get to the arctic ocean i was just a thousand miles short and <laughs> wow. you know what it it actually worked it when i went to apply for the visa again i went to the u.s embassy in canada and when i turned up for the appointments they said hey hang on i know you 
and they recognized me from the story that had been on the the Alaskan news and all of the fuss that had been kicked up and they basically said sure you can finish your trip no problem here's a visa and I was allowed to drive the last thousand miles and finish this six-year expedition. Do you think that's because you found the right person? Sometimes I wonder if when people get a no in these situations, if it's just the decision that one person made, and if they went somewhere else and talked to someone else, maybe they would get a different response. Absolutely, that was the situation. I mean, the the problem with these interviews is they have to process so many people in a day. They don't really have time to listen to your whole backstory. Right. And even though I I explain to them like, hey, I just I just want to go and drive a thousand miles and then I'm done. Uh, it didn't matter. I didn't tick the boxes. I hadn't been home for a while. I was a potential um, risk of emigrating to the U.S. And so the answer was no. Mm. But then in the end, you were allowed to. Yeah, the story doesn't quite end there, though, unfortunately. Um, whilst I was on my way back to the U.S. and celebrating going up to Alaska to pick up my bus, our bus actually caught fire on its own where it was stored in Alaska. Oh, no. Due to an electrical fault. So within a week, we were up there and our entire home had been destroyed. Ah, uh, what did you do? We restored it. I mean, I'd always promised that I would give away our combi to, to one of our subscribers at the end of my trip. And I, I felt a little guilty that it was in such bad condition. So... Um, myself, my girlfriends, my little dog, Alaska, named after the trip. Uh, she was from Peru, by the way. We picked her up in Peru. And uh, one of our supporters, Brett, a subscriber of the channel, he drove us up to up the Alaskan highway and spent three weeks with us, helping us restore the bus so that we could finish the trip. That guy was a, a legend. Wow. So this life experience must really change a person's you know, perception of humanity. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? How did the way that you perceive people grow? I was at the mercy of um, a lot of people. You know, I broke down in a rural town in Alaska uh, in the first place, and I was taken in by an Alaskan family who took us out fishing and, and um, subsistence hunting so that we could, you know, be part of their family whilst we figured out what we were going to do with the bus. Um, to get out of Alaska from that rural community, I was taken in by the captain of a, a sailing boat who basically gave us accommodation as we helped him sail down uh, a couple of thousand miles to so we could get out of Alaska. At every single junction, when I've run into problems, I've met good people. It's sort of basically whenever you are in bad situations, you meet the best people. Now, here's a question. You say you meet the best people, and I, I believe you. But is that like the first person you come across, or does it take patience? Do you have to wait a while and interact with a lot of people before the, the right people show up? Yeah, you think that would be the case, right? But really, I think people, it, it, in almost every single situation, it was almost the first person that we spoke to that we needed help, that, that, that offered help to us. Um, you know, we would say... Like, hey, we're in trouble here. We need to find a mechanic or or something like that. And they'd be like, "Well, I'm. I can. You want to try and do that at my house? I can. I can help you with that. Just come back to my place." Wow. And 
you know, we'd end up tearing the engine apart and we'd end up living there for two weeks and become the best of friends. And yeah, we were very lucky with the people we met. And it happened far too frequently for it to be a coincidence. It's just human nature. I think it is. Well, let's go back to the one people might say kind of quirky idea about this trip. And that was that you were going to pick people up and let them stay with you in the van. And were you targeting travelers or locals or were you targeting anybody? How did that work out? We did. I, I did pick up um, anybody. I, I was um, not very fussy on who they were, but for the most part, it was other travelers. Locals tend to just want to stay around wherever it is that we pick them up. So the locals that joined us were often hitchhikers that were getting from A to B. For the most part, the people we picked up were travelers kind of on extended journeys. And that was really the best fit for us because they were on a similar agenda, you know, seeing new places and open with their schedule. So what kind of friendships developed out of that? A lot of people would say, you know what, I might pick up a traveler, but I'm not sleeping in the same bus with a traveler the first night. I got to get to know people first. Yeah, very few people would sleep in a bus on the first night. I met a guy, his... his, (laughs) Here's an example. I met a guy, I think it was the first night that I was alone in the bus. Now, I'd driven all the way from Chile. This was midway through Colombia in a town called Cali. And I hadn't spent one single night in the bus on my own since I left the trip. I'd always found somebody or picked somebody up or, or, you know, usually there was multiple people. And the first night that I was on my own, uh, a Venezuelan motorcyclist overtook me in 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 the Colombian mountains and flagged me down and I was like this is a bit weird and so I, I he, he was obviously a traveler like I wouldn't stop in that situation for anybody it, it could be dangerous but he you know had a lot of backpacks on on the side of his motorbike he had foreign plates I knew he was on a on a trip like I was so I stopped t- to see what he was saying and he he basically ended up saying that he was going to Cali as well. He was looking for somewhere to stay and asking if I knew anything about the town because it's a little bit dodgy. And we ended up sleeping in the back of the bus together just that one night. But, you know, it just goes to show that 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 was my approach with how I would kind of meet people and select people. I would just I was really open and I offered my home kind of without any restraints or restrictions on my part and I was always met with kind of a a loving heart as well people treated me as I treated them which was um, quite nice Mm, what an amazing way to to do this and that means you're going to meet a lot of people and get to know them pretty intimately right off the bat I mean wow so what was the longest that people stayed with you well, we had people staying from a few hours up to a few months. I mean, I met my girlfriend in Mexico, and she's still here, and it's been a couple of years already. So, <laughs> okay, girlfriends that, aside, <laughs> yeah, go, that might be cheating. Um, the longest I think uh, a friend stayed was probably like three or four months. Mm. Three or four months in a small Volkswagen bus with someone that you didn't know beforehand. That's that's a real uh, study of human nature as well. Did things work out pretty well? Was there a lot of conflict or did it generally go the way you had hoped to? I would like to say it was all sunshine and lollipops, but of course there was conflict and, and arguments. I had to learn 
how to share this tiny space with people at the same time that they had to learn it as, as well. So in the early days, um, it, it was a bit of a challenge, to be honest. And I, I had to learn a lot of patience. And I grew a lot as a person through this process. I became a lot less selfish. Bear in mind that when I'm sharing it with a, another person, there's usually three other people in there as well. Like the most we ever had actually driving was 10 and the most we ever had sleeping in there was six. So that's tight quarters. That's fun. Um, did you have to establish some ground rules? So yeah, you can hang with us and, and sleep in the van, but here's how this works. The only thing I would ever tell people is that um, it's not a free ride. We share the cost of uh, gasoline and we share the cost of food. So if we're cooking something, uh, we're going to the supermarket to buy camp supplies, everybody chips in. But we never charge for the accommodation um, or, or the adventures or anything like that. So it made it a really cheap way to travel. It made it something that I could afford because, you know, traveling for a long time can be expensive, uh, especially if you're crossing an entire planet, as I was. So having people to share the petrol costs with um, made it affordable for me. And this will probably surprise you, Kurt, but my my daily budget for the majority of the trip, certainly south of uh, the U.S. border, was around $10, $10 U.S. dollars a day. Mm. So I know that that can be done. And uh, I've talked to a lot of travelers who have done that, just very inexpensive travel. Uh, did that make you feel like you were super, super conservative with your money or was $10 a day all right? $10 a day for a single person traveling uh, would be pretty tight. The way it worked for us is that if there's six people in the bus, everybody puts in $10. That's $60 for the day. And like that, it's actually quite affordable, especially if you're cooking your own meals. Nice. Nice. So we're starting to draw out several different angles that made this possible. One was that the people that that stayed with you in the bus helped to pay for fuel and food. Okay, that was part of it. You uh, bought an inexpensive vehicle, but then you had to repair it all the time. I don't know if you came out ahead on that one or not. Yeah, probably not. I mean, if you, all up, I I definitely put in like, you know, probably five times the initial uh, purchase price on on repairs. And I did all of the maintenance myself. Um, it's probably why I kept on breaking down. But the, the you know... Engine rebuild after engine rebuilds does get expensive, but for the most part, I was using uh, kind of recycled used parts that I would find and molds to my purpose or buy two engines for, you know, a couple of hundred dollars and take them apart. And that's why I was in, in um, you know, various mechanics for such a long period of time living alongside these guys because I was learning how to build an engine that would actually get me to Alaska. Mm. It took a while, but eventually after I think engine removal number, let's say eight or nine, I finally managed to get enough good parts to build a decent engine that got me from Mexico all the way to the Arctic and, and pretty much back again. <laughs> it just sounds like I keep laughing because it sounds like such a fun life adventure, the ups, the downs, the struggles, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have to rebuild the engine that many times. And then, just to add insult to injury, the whole thing burns, and you have to rebuild a burned-out shell. Wow. Yeah, that was um, 
that was the biggest test of all. And I'll have to have to be honest that I, I was ready to throw in the towel at that point. I mean, I'd made it to Alaska. The I was a thousand miles short of the finish line. Um, but, you know, after it's like several years of trying to get to Alaska, I felt like I really needed to explore the state and, and kind of have an understanding of what it was like. My trip my, the the project was called Aster Alaska, which means until Alaska in Spanish. And I just, I felt like I really needed to see something of that state, if you know, after such a long effort of getting there. Right. So did you eventually make it all the way up to the Arctic Circle? Did you go to Prudhoe Bay? What was your target? I did. I got all the way. Uh, I, I drove up the Dalton Highway um, to Dead Horse, the last town in in Alaska, the last town on the Pan American Highway, I should say. Um, and then I wanted to go to Prudhoe Bay, but unfortunately, since 9-11, they have closed the last 10 miles of the road. And so now you have to pay $70 to go on a bus for the last 10 miles. Now, I don't think, you know, for me, I could... I was thinking I've driven here. That's that's okay. But can you imagine for the people that cycle the Pan American Highway? Right. They get all all the way there and they get told now you have to get on a on a bus for the last ten miles. Mm. Oh. How disappointing! So I didn't I didn't do that. I um, actually flew to a, an island in the Arctic Ocean called uh, Kaktovik or B- Barter Island it's called and the town was Kaktovik it's a tiny little um, Inupia Eskimo community who live up there I think there's about 250 people and that for me was a much more authentic experience of Arctic life rather than being on a tour and that pretty much sets the philosophy of the trip I try not to do tours I try to do my own you know, kind of seek out my own adventures nice well, what about income to support the trip? You still had to have money coming in from somewhere. So this came from your social media, is that right? Yeah, for the most part, like the first years of travel was all from savings, from from work. I worked every single extra shift that I possibly could to save up every penny that I could to invest in myself and have, you know, a huge adventure. But obviously that money started to run out at some point. You can't travel for a decade and off off of savings. It's it's cheap, but it's not that cheap. So luckily these days um, I've managed to turn my passion for travel and exploring into a career. And now I can make a, a small amount of money from social media, from from the videos we create. I think when I first monetized our YouTube channel after about three years of doing it, I, I finally realized you could click on the button and, and start making money. That was a bit of a shock. <laughs> so through advertising, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Through the, through the AdSense. Um, and, you know, the, the larger your audience grows, the more opportunities there are to generate revenue and working with brands and having people get behind you. So for the next project, I'm, I'm quite lucky to be working with a few people that are going to enable us to, to tackle an even bigger um, project. So you don't have to give us details, but people are going to want to know the scale of this. Is it just enough money to kind of help out? Or were you able to build a career that says, you know what, I could do this for a long time based on this? You know, you know what, Kurt? To be perfectly honest with you, if I really hustled at what I do, 
I could make a, a a decent living. And when I say decent, comparable to a, you know any career that one of my friends of a similar age has. But the way that I run my YouTube channel, I don't like uploading content all the time just for the sake of getting something in front of people, just for the sake of getting clicks and um, you know generating money. I actually have only uploaded two videos this year. I've been filming every single day. I'm filming for my next series right now, but I'm not uploading anything because I, I just really value the time of my audience and I don't want to put crap in front of their eyes. And so I would rather piece together a story that takes several months to film and then you know upload two or three videos that's like edited concisely and is engaging and interesting to watch and something that the people will actually remember rather than just put it out just so I can get paid so I'm not very smart from a business perspective in this way and we do struggle financially because of that but it's important to me to to only produce quality content and that's it's kind of why our channel is a little different to your u- usual YouTube channel. Well, thank you for being candid about that. And I have to say, the videos that I have watched were very well done, and I really enjoyed them a lot. It's not just that you uh, shot some good shots. You know, you you did some good editing, and I really like the the format and the way that you put it together. Very interesting, very fun to watch. You want to see the next one as soon as the last one ended, sort of a thing. So well done. Yes, thanks, Kurt. I mean, that's the idea. It's it's more a, a story that we try to tell based on the adventure so that people can experience it with us. Because I get it, not everybody is in a position to throw in their career and take off across the planet in an old Volkswagen. And that's a big part of why I share it, so that other people can experience it vicariously with us. And we spend months and months and months editing those the footage that we, that we captured so that people can do that. And so we're not wasting their time, you know? Well, it, it is evident that you've done a lot of work on these because they really are high quality. You also have some books. Now, have the books been as beneficial financially as you hoped? Um, I never really intended them to be a, a moneymaker, but they do, you know, it trickles in. The, the, we have uh, three digital books, ebooks that people can download. One of them is the early days of the story, things like the um, the shooting and stuff that happened when the cameras weren't rolling in the early days before I really got serious about capturing uh, the adventure and, and before I really started the YouTube channel. Uh, the other two are, are kind of pitched to allow people to to follow in our footsteps. Like we wanted to share some of the knowledge that we've gained over the last six years. So that's like a a book to basically tell people how they can live off grid and on the move and, you know, how to set up a, a camper van so that you can actually live comfortably because it might look like it's, you know, like the best time in in the world, but we're very honest about what this kind of lifestyle is like. It it does come with its own challenges and it can be difficult sometimes. And we're really clear about that on our, on our YouTube channel and everything we create, we don't want to mislead people and tell them this is the best thing in the world and it's better than what you're doing now and what you should do, what we're doing. You know, it's, it's right for some people and it's not right for other people. And we want people to understand that, you know otherwise it's very very easy in this day and age of social media to to see all these amazing photos of other people living their dreams and then think that you can do the same thing but it's it's not always the case 
And it's not always exactly like it looks on the Instagram feed either. Right. And thanks for being honest about that. But it is something that can be done and you've proven it. You can have a big life adventure. It just may not be, you know, what do they say? All all unicorns and butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you absolutely can. It can be something that's available to, to anybody. And um, that's why we have those books, so that people can learn how to do it themselves. And, and you know, they can follow in our footsteps and or, or, you know, find their own adventure if, if that's something that they want to do. Well, the book that you alluded to is Off Grid and On the Move, and it's called Vehicle Dwelling, Expert's Guide to Nomadic Living. Um, that sounds really interesting to me. The first one you mentioned is called Overlanding South America, The Untold Story. You have a third one. It's off-grid and solar electrical systems. So it, I guess that's just what it sounds like, huh? Exactly. A big part of living off-grid is kind of maximizing your um, solar presence. And that can be very rewarding in itself. We, as much as we travel, we also produce all of our content off-grid from the back of a bus. We edit all of our videos there and we we work with the sun. And, you know, there's um, some strategy that goes into that. And there's also a lot of equipment and tech that goes into it too. So we try to keep that updated with uh, the best the best tips for people with the evolving technology. Nice. So these are eBooks. How can people get a, a copy? We have them on our website on combilife.com. Um, they're usually linked. We have a whole series of content, which is free for people to, you know, I understand that people, a lot of people that are interested in this kind of lifestyle don't necessarily have a lot of money because it's, it, it can be quite cost effective. You can actually, um, travel and live in a vehicle for, you know, six months or 12 months or, you know, even a few years and you can end up spending less money than you would if you're just living in a house and paying rent and everything like that. So there's enormous adv uh, advantages to living this lifestyle of being off grid and on the move. And um, we we want to enable people to do it more than anything. So there's a whole bunch of free content on our website too, um, based around that that, that um, product that we sell. And that's combilife.com. That's K-O-M-B-I life.com. Man, I, I wish that we had time to continue hearing stories and to, to dive a little bit deeper, but uh, we're, we've filled up our time slot. I, one more story. There has to be a life experience in there somewhere that, that you'll always remember. Could you share something like that with us? You know, my, my favorite um, experiences are the ones when I connect closely with, with uh, the locals, when I really experience life in a different way. And I think one of the, the experiences that stands out for me um, greatly is, is in stumbling upon a fishing, little fishing village or a, a family of fishermen in Baja, California. And they took us in. I think we were there for eight days. At that time, I was traveling with uh, one girl from Washington who had just flown in to join me for the Mexican adventure and drive off into the desert, not knowing me. She was obviously insane, but we had a great time. And, you know, we were taken in by this family and we got to learn how they fish and how they process octopus. I think they made us paint a sign for them with the ink from the octopus at, at one point. It, you know, it was just 
a completely off the wall experience. It was something that we just stumbled upon. We had just been driving out on um, a road, literally following the sunset because we wanted to keep watching the sunset. And we just kept driving towards the sun and we found this family and they took us in and we got to see how they live. And, you know, when you see a family living so simply and so happy, that's really you know, that was a big message to me. It, it was just, it reinforced my belief of you don't need material things to be happy. And it's, it's really experiences over possessions, which is, is the truly valuable thing. And I think that's something that stuck with me from that experience. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing from your experiences, you know, with us, with our audience. I, uh, I'm inspired I think it sounds like an amazing life experience, and uh, I appreciate your time that you you know you took out of your busy schedule to be a part of what we're doing here. So thanks, man. No problem. Thank you very much for having us, Kurt. Uh, hopefully, we can speak to you further down the road when we're somewhere in Asia or something on our next big overlanding adventure. Well, we do have to hear what's you know on the books for the future. So, what's your next target? Well. Keep, I'll keep it very brief, but we are basically planning to drive across the entire world now. Since we've driven from the south to the north, we are now driving from the west to the east, with the end destination being Australia. So that will be overland through Europe, possibly some of Africa, and through Asia. And uh, it's going to be one heck of an adventure. We have uh, a vehicle which we found in the Arizona desert. It's 45 years old. Um, and we are midway through prepping that for the next big adventure. And that series will start coming out, uh, the end of this year. So <laughs> if any of you guys want to follow us for that adventure, now is a really good time to come and join us for it. Nice. <laughs> nice. So that will all be on Combi Life as well. Yeah, it'll be there on the, on the YouTube channel and the website. Um, that's, uh, all in the pipeline. So I'm, I'm very, very excited because this is a huge challenge for us. Wow. Well, good for you, Ben. Awesome. We will follow you and we'd love to have you back on the show periodically so that you can share uh, more recent stories and experiences with us. So we'd love to, to live a little vicariously through your travels, if you'll allow us. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. And for all the listeners out there, Thanks again for listening in, and until the next show, I'm not going to just say get out there and have some fun, which we always say. I'm going to say start thinking about how you can build a life outside of the box while you're getting out there and having some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.